So what kind of a man was he who was engaged to Mary? What does he have to do with Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us? The story of our salvation. Matthew tells us plainly in chapter 1, verse 19, Mary's husband Joseph, being a righteous man, and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. That first phrase, Joseph, being a righteous man, is a phrase worth dwelling on. Because I find no other person in all of Matthew's gospel described as righteous other than Jesus. When Pilate and his wife are discussing Jesus' fate, they refer to him as righteous. This could only mean that Joseph was recognized by his community as beyond reproach, an honest and trustworthy person. To be called righteous in this way meant that he must be as faithful and devoted a person as could be. For Joseph to be so recognized, he not only knew Torah, God's law, God's instruction, but he had these words, the depth of its meaning written on its, his doorposts and, and on his heart. On Joseph's front door was a mezuzah. He passed through every day, I just know it, and touched it and said his prayer in his heart. We hardly need this helpful note from the author since Matthew also tells us he had no intentions of heaping guilt on Mary or making a spectacle of her. She had shown up pregnant and no one knew how, and especially not him, when he could have burned hot with jealousy. Joseph remained gentle. He was a righteous man. We may say Joseph was righteous in the fullest sense possible because in order to keep the spirit of the Torah, he breaks the law. Planning for Mary's quiet dismissal. There's a relevant passage in Torah in Deuteronomy chapter 22, which allowed for and practically calls for capital punishment for this capital offense that he perceives Mary to have committed. But Joseph balks at what the Bible says. Knowing in his heart how the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life, he privileges mercy over vengeance. That is, he gets the true meaning of the Torah. He was a righteous man. We may add yet another layer of righteousness to Joseph's character because he acted with wisdom even though he was afraid. And perhaps, in my view, this is the most impressive part of his character. Joseph, the angel, says to him in a dream, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. And we know that we often make rash and impulsive decisions when we're afraid. When fear possesses us, we're liable to make destructive, regrettable decisions. But even in his state of fear, even in his state of disorientation, even in this impossible moral quandary, Joseph keeps his composure and he chooses not to do violence, neither the, the legally permitted violence 
nor the violence of ruining Mary's reputation. Joseph was a righteous man. And Joseph was wrong. In fact, Joseph was so wrong in his righteousness that God had to send an angel of the Lord in a dream in order to put a stop to his righteous plans. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, and now I'm paraphrasing, we all appreciate your God-fearing ways and you're going to church every Sunday and you're reading the Bible and volunteering at the community center and whatnot. But your righteousness is no match for what God is about to do. No hard feelings, Joseph. It's not you. It's God. You get a pass on this because only God could think of doing something like this. For the child conceived in Mary is from the Holy Spirit, so do not be afraid to take her as your wife. You see, Joseph was as righteous as a man could be, and yet his plans to kindly dismiss Mary with no fanfare were so outside the purview of God's plan that an angel of the Lord had to intervene. <laughs> what good is being righteous then if God is going to go God's own way, whether we're righteous or not? I'm reminded of the ending of Flannery O'Connor's short story, Revelation. I'm going to spoil it for you, but You've had time to read it. I think it came out in the 50s. So, so uh, there's a far more odious and self-righteous character at the center of this story named Mrs. Turpin. And uh, she sees a vision of people of all kinds, saints and sinners, marching into heaven here at the end of the story. And she can tell by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. Mrs. Turpin embodies that character of the southern white woman of her time. She, she does things decently and in order, like any normal person ought to do. Uh, she's, her, her whole life she's been immersed in the civilities of her culture. She's, she's gossipy. Um, and judgmental. But church-going and respectable until she sees a vision when she's looking into a pig pen, of all things, of all the wrong kinds of people walking into heaven together with all the right kinds of people. And stunned by this revelation, she's walking back home, and in the woods around her, the invisible cricket choruses have struck up. But what she hears in them are the voices of the souls climbing upward into the starry field and shouting hallelujah. Now, I wish, I personally wish, that Matthew had given more attention to Mary because she gets it right 
I mean, she's the one in Luke who gets it right. It's her faithfulness that we're called to imitate of being completely disoriented and afraid and not knowing the future and still letting ourselves being aligned with God's purposes in the world. I wish that Matthew had told that story and overlap with Luke's version of it, but we don't get even Mary's voice. In fact, the only other time I remember hearing about Mary in the Gospel of Matthew, or at least the second time I remember it, is Jesus is ignoring her and his siblings when people say, hey, your mom and your brothers are here to listen to your sermon. And he's like, my mom and my brothers, where have they been? They don't listen to me at home. Why would they listen to me here? My family's here today. I just threw that in there. We have to go to Luke to to hear Mary speak and sing. But nevertheless, I believe Matthew is doing something really tongue-in-cheek by elevating Joseph's perspective. He does give Joseph a central role in the narrative, but just as soon as Matthew promotes Joseph's character, he tells us how God has to go around it to get what God wants. And let's not forget that Matthew's gospel and this very same chapter begins with a list of malcontents and 'er ne'er-do-wells. I will use any excuse to fit in 'er ne'er-do-well in a sermon. (laughs) The gospel opens with a genealogy that upon first glance appears to be another one of the Bible's really boring, long list of begats. Reveals that Jesus, though, is descended from tax collectors and sinners prostitutes and outcasts. Jacob the trickster, Rahab the the prostitute, Ruth the foreigner, King David the scheming politician, all of them here in this list and Jesus would not be alive without them. If we were counting on good character being the common thread holding this genealogy together, we wouldn't get halfway through the first paragraph of the first gospel in the New Testament. I wonder if Advent invites us to embody a new kind of righteousness, a righteousness beyond righteousness. I wonder if Advent invites us to become righteous by giving up our own understanding of righteousness. And what is righteousness? I believe it means learning to be faithful again after what we thought was faithfulness is getting in God's way. I believe righteousness means realigning our own dreams with God's dream. In his Nobel Peace Prize, in his Nobel Prize speech in 1949, William Faulkner remarked that the only thing worth writing about is the human heart in conflict with itself. I imagine Matthew knew this. I imagine Matthew set about his Christmas account with the conflicted human heart in mind, and that's each one of us. Matthew knew God was doing something so completely new in the birth of Jesus Christ. I find it remarkable reading both the Christmas accounts in Matthew and in Luke, how many dreams and visions there are. 
Joseph dreams three times. He dreams of the angel who tells him not to dismiss Mary. He dreams that he must take Jesus and Mary to Egypt. Then he dreams again that it's safe to come back from Egypt. The wise men, the magi, dream. They're warned in a dream. Over in Luke, Mary sees visions and hears from the angel. So does Zechariah and Simeon sees visions. This time of year and this liturgical season for the church is ripe for opportunities for dreams and visions. This is a most enchanting time of the year. And in that enchantment and in these liminal spaces, God comes to encounter us and set us on a new path. I wonder if I might invite each one of you to pay attention to your dreams, especially this time of year. I remember a time in my life was a very difficult and challenging, confusing and disorienting time. I had decisions to make about my life. I thought I knew the path that God was preparing me for me. One night I had one of those dreams that I knew I would never forget. I knew when I woke up in the morning that this would be one of those dreams I will never forget. A technicolor dream. I was walking down a stairwell down into the bowels of a great cathedral. Stone cathedral, high rising uh, chapel, steeple cathedral. And I knew going down those steps, I knew in my mind and the dream that this was the path that I wanted. That this was the path that, that God was preparing for me. And as I was descending the stairwell, I came around the bend and there was nothing but a stone wall in front of me. There was nowhere to go. I couldn't go in the direction I wanted to go. And so I had to turn around. The only way out was to turn back around and to leave my path. And on the way back up the stairs, I felt myself being seized by light. Light surrounded me and enveloped me. And I couldn't even breathe. I felt like I was being squeezed and pressed on all sides and somehow at the same time comforted, but also changed. And knowing in that dream and waking up that somehow in some way I could walk in the comfort and the confidence of a new path for my life and not be afraid anymore. And that dream still guides me and still teaches me that when I think I'm right, I might not be. I commend to you this enchanting time of year and invite you to play, pay the closest possible attention to your dreams. May God disturb each one of us in our dreams to put a new and right spirit within us so that our lives will never be the same again and we will be changed forever. And as our human hearts are in conflict with themselves, 
we'll find even our virtues burned away and the Word of God will be made flesh and written on our hearts.